Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Winebanks. And today's Jill's pin is my first homemade pin. I had to have a megaphone because our guest today used a megaphone to the best effect I have ever seen. His microphone was shut off and his megaphone made the message loud and clear. And today I learned that in addition to everything that Jill has done, she's also an artist, which is quite <laughs> phenomenal. So if you are listening to this episode- I learned that in kindergarten, Victor. <laughs> I did. How to cut out a shape of a megaphone. Better than I can do, at least. But if you're um, listening to this episode, you might want to tune in and watch this uh, episode to see uh, hashtag Jill's pens. Um, but you know, we often talk about the fascistic ta- tactics that the Republican Party deploys throughout the country. Today, Jill and I are honored and lucky to have someone who is on the front lines of pushing back against fascism every day in his home state, Tennessee. Uh, Earlier this year, he was expelled simply because he protested shortly after a mass shooting in Nashville, joining with survivors of gun violence who demanded Republicans do something about it. He was reinstated by the Republican governor and then reelected shortly after, but Republicans last week silenced him yet again, None of this is normal in a country that calls itself a democracy, but unfortunately experiences like this are happening all too frequently for any of our comfort. And it's not just happening in his state, it's happening in other states. Our guest today, you have probably guessed by now, is Justin Jones, who became famous as one of the Tennessee Three. He is the youngest member of the Tennessee State Legislature, and while he may be young, He has lived a life of getting into good and necessary trouble. He has worked tirelessly in protesting against policies from his college days uh, until now in the statehouse. He is a leading voice for reform on gun control legislation and pushing back against extreme Republicans who are all trying to shut him up. Um, And it is so much of an honor to have Justin with us today. It's great hearing from you. We are pleased to have you join us. Thank you, Jill and Victor. So great to be with you both. So we mentioned in the um, intro um, a little bit about earlier this year and what happened and um, the repetition after your re-election. Um, I think I join a lot of Tennesseans and also people across the country in just the outrage by what happened in Tennessee. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and sort of walk us through what happened um, and led to that first um, expulsion of you and uh, Justin Pearson. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, well, it starts with a tragedy that hit um, Nashville. So I represent um, a part of Nashville here in Davidson County, uh, the 52nd District. And Nashville was was um, traumatized by a mass shooting that took the lives of three nine-year-olds and three adults. And so um, a lot of the world knows myself, Representative Pierce, Representative Johnson as a Tennessee Three. Uh, but we didn't go to the well of the house as the Tennessee Three. We went there for the, those three nine-year-olds and three adults who were massacred because of this proliferation of guns in our community. Um, we, were, we were frustrated because after the shooting, so many people in our body, uh, predominantly the Republican um, leadership, were choosing to tr- ignore the crisis, ignore the grief of our community, ignore even allowing us talking about common sense gun laws. And so we did um, what John Lewis taught us to do, which is to find a way to get in the way and to get in good trouble and to dramatize the moral crisis of of, of gun violence that has plagued us for so long. Um, Covenant, which is where the shooting occurred, was not the first mass shooting in Nashville. And unless we act, it will not be the last. We we have to address this issue. And we've heard it from our state house, the White House, this call for action um, to protect kids and not guns. And that's what happened. Um, And then on April 6th, rather than a ban assault weapons, as we called on our colleagues to do, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House, Cameron Sexton, chose to assault democracy and lead an unprecedented um, expulsion vote of myself and Pearson, the two youngest Black members in our body. Um, our friend and dear sister, Gloria Johnson, was spared by one vote, but it also showed for the world the overt racism in our body and the extremism um, of the Republican supermajority um, in their actions. And I still feel like it can't have really happened in America that your microphone was turned off, 
that your megaphone was shouted down, that you were expelled, and that your white colleague who didn't get expelled stayed in the House. It's so outrageous. It's so authoritarian that it really scares me, but especially because it happened again. And we'll get to that a little later, but just tell me if you heard anyone even attempt to justify their actions against you and Justin Pearson. Yeah. And so thank you for bringing it up because a lot of people, you know, again, saw what happened um, to lead to our expulsion. But before that, our microphones were shut off on the floor. We were shut down right. completely. We wouldn't even be recognized. We were not, you know, we were elected by our districts to be their voice. And it is unethical for us to be members and not be able to speak on behalf of the constituents, um, over 70,000 each who sent us there to be their voice um, in the legislature. I represent one of the most diverse districts in, in, in Tennessee. And so my constituency has a very you know, unique perspective and, and, and unique call that needs to be heard on the floor of the House. And rather than allow us to be representatives, they chose to be authoritarians and shut us down and silence us and use uh, very archaic measures to make sure that we couldn't speak on the House floor, um, you know, citing a rule where they could take a vote if we could speak or not. I mean, this is very undemocratic and it is emblematic of a deeper issue in American politics because what happened, you know, as we told people that this would send a signal, that this would be a precedent to silence other lawmakers. And we saw what happened to Zoe Zephyr. Um, you know, I would dare even say even before this, the insurrection was an attempt, we know, to uh, to subvert democracy, to silence the will of voters. And we cannot separate those actions from what happened in the Tennessee State House. In fact, some of my colleagues and former uh, members of the House were at the insurrection. So let's, you know, let's just draw the lines yeah. as to what's happening. Um, and then the Speaker of the House went so far as to say that what we did was worse than the insurrection. When we went to the House floor calling for an end to gun violence, he went on Fox News and went on these national radio shows saying that they committed an insurrection that was worse than January 6th. I mean, it is delusion. And and so what we heard from our colleagues was this type of recommittal to a very dark legacy in Tennessee history. Um, you know, this 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 effort to undermine multiracial democracy, which we saw our state is the birthplace of the Klan, of the KKK. We saw these mm -hmm. tactics before. We saw efforts to oust uh, Black lawmakers during Reconstruction. We saw the silencing of dissent. And it's very dangerous. But what they did not expect was that the day after we were expelled, uh, the vice president took an emergency trip to Nashville and stood with the movement here and said that, you know, what happened was an attack to democracy. and We should all stand against it. I mean, that was such an important signal from the White House that this was not just going to be an issue that they could brush under the rug and silence, but that it was really a national concern that we have to fight for multiracial democracy in this nation, particularly around this election time where you have people who are literally authoritarians running to be president of this nation, whether Ron DeSantis, who wants to oust duly elected state attorneys, or um, Donald Trump, who incited a violent insurrection and who continues to, to re- um, regurgitate these very harmful lies about the democratic process. I mean, we are literally, this election that we're in and why what happened to us is so important, a signal is that we are faced with authoritarianism. We are faced with very real threats to our democracy who, who talk about what they want to they want to take this nation back. And if we're not careful, they're going to take us back to a time we don't want to go to. I mean, you, you I, I just want to say, you know, you mentioned about the megaphone and the microphone and I handmade a megaphone pin because I wear a pin that captures things uh, that are in the news. And the megaphone that I saw online didn't arrive in time. So I just want you to know, I personally made a megaphone. Oh, my goodness. I love it. And it says, speak up. So I, I, I'm very proud of my handiwork because to me, it is the end of democracy if elected members cannot speak up and are expelled and mm. then reappointed and then reelected. Uh, it, it's just too awful. But I know Victor had something he wanted to ask. Well, I mean, Jill is showing us her her artwork right now, which is quite amazing. <laughs> but there's also, like you said, um, Representative Jones, I mean, the response to it was just so amazing. You had, like you said, the vice president coming to Tennessee and, and responding to it and making a national issue. But what I was struck by more than anything else was the response from like people on the ground and the number of young people who came to the state capitol and made their voices heard and demanded that you and Justin be reinstated. Have you ever seen anything like that before in your time serving in the state legislature or being in Tennessee, that sort of energy and enthusiasm from young people? 
Not at all. I mean, it was so unprecedented and so inspiring. We have not seen that mass movement of young people since the 1960s when young people like John Lewis and Diane Nash um, led sit-ins here in Nashville, um, challenging Jim Crow inequality. And so you saw this new generation take that energy, take that that legacy in our city and, and, and breathe new life into it. And I think it was so powerful because it was young people, many of whom cannot vote even yet, but who said that we are fighting for our democracy. We are fighting to be safe in our schools. We are fighting for the future that we deserve. And it really sent a clear message um, to my Republican colleagues. Um, you know, I call Gen Z the find out generation, that this is the find out era and that these young people are the transformational force in our state that are going to, 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 to oust this authoritarianism, to, 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 to rebuild a state where we uplift human dignity, uplift, you know, protecting our kids and not bowing down to the contributions of the NRA and the gun industry, but where we uplift and care for each other. I think it's it's so beautiful to see. And, and it was multiracial, it was mothers. I mean, you, you, you even had, we just had a session recently, special session, you had Republican mothers standing together saying that we are tired of this extremism, that we, you know, we want to protect our children. So you see a movement here that we have not seen in a long time. And I think it's, we cannot ignore that it's happening in the South. Because so often we forget the South. We think of the South as somewhere to discount that is, you know, just solidly red. But we are building this new fusion coalition, this multiracial, multigenerational, you know, multi-geographic from East Tennessee to Middle Tennessee to West Tennessee movement that really can transform the state. And I really believe, as Du Bois said, if we can transform the South, we can transform this nation. And so, um, and I love that the, the pin you made, um, Jill, because that megaphone was not something that we should have to bring to the right. floor. The only exactly. reason we the megaphone is because our microphones were shut off. The only reason we walked up to the wells is because our people, these young people, were pushed out and pushed back and denied entrance into the building and were silenced when they said, you know, will you act? You know, I want to live, you know, do something. This is what their signs said, these young people. And my colleagues chose to have business as usual. But business as usual was massacres and violence. I mean, even in the past couple of weeks, we've seen more mass shootings at UNC in Jacksonville. I mean, this is a crisis that we have to address and have the courage to address. It's a uniquely American problem and we can solve it. We know policies can change this and it's going to take courage and conscience to do so. Absolutely. And let me just ask you, before this particular episode, the first of the silencing you, was there anything that led you to think that this would happen? What was your experience as a new member of the Tennessee House? What what were you expecting or what were you experiencing that could have predicted this? Yeah, I mean, it was never a welcoming place. <laughs> um, I, I spoke at... Um, University in California at UC Berkeley's commencement, I shared a story of my first week in the legislature. And, you know, I was excited. I was, I was a new member. I just got sworn in. We're going to the governor's inauguration. And um, State Senator Jack Johnson, the Republican majority leader in the Senate, was on the elevator with me. And without any type of engagement, without, you know, just unsolicited, you know, him saying this, he, he told me on the elevator, he said, you know, you're worthless and you don't belong here. Oh, and that my was God. My introduction to the legislature. And, but it was at that moment that it, it was clarifying for me because I knew and recognized then that I was not here to make friends. I was here to make change and that these people uh, who had for so long been in power were threatened by this new generation of voices, even our mere presence, because it represented a turning point in our state. And, you know, as I went through session, even before this, you had a member, um, Paul Sherrill, Representative Paul Sherrill in criminal justice saying we should bring back hanging by a tree. Um, you have members, you know, who say the most asinine comments, attacking, um, I was in a government operations committee, attacking Kamala Harris uh, and, and just making the most asinine statements. And, and we sit there and you just recognize this is the absurdity of this all is that they're and they're so used to being unchallenged right. and just having that dominant voice that no one will speak up in dissent. Um, because some people said, you know, maybe your first year, just be silent, don't say anything, but it would be a disservice to the people of District 52 if I was silent amidst so much policy harm happening in this body. I think you nailed it right on the head, which is like everything that you represent is the biggest threat to their ability to stay in power. Um, but at the same time, what we also saw during your um, expulsion kind of effort was um, people like Gloria Johnson and true allies and true brothers like Justin Pearson um, with you in this fight. And how many of those people exist in the Tennessee state legislature? And how much easier has it been going through all of what you have gone through with people like them and, and others um, in that body? Yeah, I mean, I think 
what we have shown is that courage can be contagious. And that action with three people has now spread in our state. You know, it, it's it, you see, um, because like, for example, I was I was the only member recently silenced in our special session. And when I was silenced this time by the House Speaker um, for speaking about an issue that my district, you know, offered as a policy alternative to just putting more guns in our schools, the Speaker, you know, silenced me and the whole Democratic caucus walked out in protest. Mm -hmm. um, this has not happened many times, but you see you see this courage happening um, because people recognize that. This what we've been taught, where we, we're taught to be fearful that we're just the super minority, that we cannot do anything. Um, we we pull the veil off of that narrative and shown that our job is to be a check on power. Our job is to be advocates for the people of Tennessee who feel powerless and voiceless. I mean, I've had so many people who live in my Republican colleagues districts reach out to my office, thousands of calls and emails saying thank you for representing us. You know, we when we went to the well, um, it wasn't just for three, but it was for so many Tennesseans across the state, urban and rural counties who are tired and who are fearful, and, and but also who now have hope that there can be an alternative to this madness. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's taken solidarity, it's taken this connection with each other, and also this willingness to recognize that we are in a moment of, of opening here. We're at a crossroads in Tennessee. And we can either go down the path of authoritarianism, the path of anti-democratic behavior, the path toward fear and division, or we can go toward the path of what Dr. King called the beloved community, where we can where we can really build something that we can be proud of and future generations can be proud of. And, and I'm so hopeful. The thing that gives me the hope the most in our state, you know, we met so many people across this nation, but what, and, and I saved these, are, are, are the young, uh, the elementary kids who draw pictures and who write us letters and who, and who you know, I, I know like a Marco, I'm thinking of Marco right now. Uh, he just turned seven he, and he wants to be a state representative now because he's been at all the protests and he's seen us fighting. So you see this new generation who are, are really not going to forget what they're seeing happening at this time. And that shows me that no matter what happens in this session, that when it comes to history, we are on the right side. And when it comes to our future, um, they've already lost. I hope for him that by the time he's old enough to serve in the legislature, he doesn't have to fight this ridiculous fight, this totally hate-filled, racist fight. It is something that I've lived through way too long and hope we could finally, finally put behind us. And I, I just want to follow up a little and ask if you think that Will there be any consequences for the Republicans who did this to you? Will there be any of them who will lose their positions, who will I, I'm not exactly sure what the consequences can be other than losing their elected offices. But is there anything that's going to happen? Hmm. I think what has been the greatest threat and accountability to them is that the nation has, has has seen what's happening in Tennessee. I mean, the Speaker of the House has done the worst thing by putting the spotlight of the nation. Now they've investigated and found out that he doesn't live in his district, that he was taking per diem, though he lives in Nashville, his kids go to school in Nashville, um, that he, you know, is unethical. I mean, he, he, they have, they have, you know, put a mirror to themselves for the whole world to see. And not just that, but this past special session, they instituted more rules that were anti-democratic to keep people out of the galleries, to stop mothers from holding eight by 11 paper signs that say, you know, one child's life is worth more than all the guns. And some of these were Republican mothers. And he had them drug out of committee for non-violently, silently sitting there with a paper sign. But guns were allowed in committee. Mm -hmm. And these mothers went to court and went and, and got a, a, a temporary restraining order against the Speaker of the House. And then he was so um, stubborn in his abuses of power. He was he had so much hubris that he went and appealed it. And the judge reinforced that there's a, a restraining order against those rules that are unconstitutional. And so in Tennessee, we like to say that we pass more lawsuits than laws. Um, <laughs> bill after bill is being struck down in court. You know, they were the first state to ban um, drag shows. And that was struck down as unconstitutional. We have these gerrymandered maps and they're in court right now. I mean, my Republican colleagues, they talk about fiscal responsibility, but we see how much taxpayer money they're wasting on lawsuits because of these ridiculous laws that they're passing that are not improving anyone's lives. Wow. Like you said, I mean, the, the young generation is the find out generation, and I hope they make them find out in their next elections. But let's talk about your recent um, election, because as we mentioned, you were reinstated back to the Tennessee legislature, which we want to talk a little bit more about. And then you had an election earlier this 
in August, which you won. Walk us through how much of that cost, how much time did it take or how much time was wasted with that effort? And uh, like, walk us through that race and, and that special election that you had. Yeah. So I was the only one who had a Republican opponent. And so the Tennessee GOP and my Republican colleagues, I spent a lot of money. <laughs> Most of my colleagues in the legislature made max contributions to my opponent, who was the vice chairman of the National Republican Party. Um, and they sent out very hateful mailers and they, they spent a lot of money. But on August um, 3rd, I won with 77 percent of the vote. And because what it was was a referendum on democracy and people saw what we were up against. And we stood, you know, proud in our in our um, record and, and proud on what we did. And people, you know, came and we were at the polling places, talk people and everyone just kept saying, thank you for fighting for us. I mean, that's what people in Tennessee have been waiting for, is somebody who will fight and will speak up and who who challenge this extremism. And so um, my Republican colleagues spent all the money they wanted, but not only that, but they wasted taxpayer money by having these special elections. And so I've, in less than a year, I went through four elections. I had my primary and general in the regular you know, cycle. And then for the special election, I had a special primary and special general. And it was just such a waste of taxpayer money all the result of an unprecedented expulsion. But for the first time in Tennessee history, a lawmaker who's expelled, which has only happened three other times, was reinstated one, Dem one you know, um, through the democratic process. And it was so beautiful to get sworn back in, surrounded by grandmothers and mothers and, and children and students. Um, I mean, it just showed the power of community. And it showed the future that is possible when we stand together and the future that is going to be Tennessee, that is Tennessee, and that they're so fearful of because, um, it's it, it it looks more like that beloved community that we're working toward. I, I I just want to make one thing clear, which is after you were expelled under Tennessee law, um, you were able to be reappointed by the Democratic governor, which is sort of unusual given the makeup of the legislature that there is a Democratic governor. So you were reappointed to fill the temporary vacancy, but then had to actually run, as you were saying, in a primary and in a general. Um, and so it's it's just, it's so ridiculous that that much money and time was wasted. And I'm just wondering if you heard anything from any Republican colleagues that was encouraging. Definitely. And just a clarification, because Bill Lee would be offended. He is a Republican. <laughs> oh, we is he a, a Republican, oh. We have a Republican governor, but I was I, appointed by the city council. council. And so every county commission, and we're a metropolitan government, so the county commission, um, three days after I was expelled, sent me back again. You know, three days later, right. the city council um, reappointed me. And that was unprecedented because the day I was reappointed, so I got expelled on April 6th, I was reappointed on April 10th. And our city hall is about maybe a couple blocks down the street from the Capitol. And we marched back with thousands of people from the city hall. And it was one of the most powerful moments. I mean, I still, it feels so surreal even thinking about it, but we, we they, they called a special extraordinary meeting of the city council, had the gavel and gavel out twice to have two like votes. And it was just so powerful to see the council unanimously appoint me uh, back to the legislature. And the governor, um, who is a Republican, um, you know, called for the special election. And he also called for the special session because I think uh, you're, we're talking about what has given us a point of hope. And at the moment, I had hope because the Republican governor, uh, Bill Lee, who was NRA endorsed, who was so proud of this gun uh, foolishness, uh, called a special session to address um, gun violence as originally. And that gave us hope. Um, and and sadly, and he called it because he lost one of his friends at Covenant at the shooting. Was one of the one of the adults yeah. was killed. His friend. Yeah. So it hit close to home. But unfortunately, um, the extremists in our legislature um, intimidated the governor. And so he kind of backed off that. And our special session devolved into nothing, nothing meaningful for these families. You had covenant families there uh, begging for action, mothers whose children were in a mass shooting. I talked to a father um, who they had just um, at the time they had just taken the desk with bullet holes out of his child's classroom. I mean, this is just the trauma from that. And you think that'll move them to action, but they got so fearful because all of us got emails from the Tennessee Farms Association. Uh, the first day of the special session, the Proud Boys gathered outside the Capitol, unfurled a banner. And it, it was like almost January 6th, like, you know, a reenactment um, because we allow guns in our Capitol. And so they could come into their Capitol with their, their guns. But mothers and children and students could not bring a small paper sign. I mean, just it shows you the the dissonance and the, and the ridiculousness of it all. Um, but so often when I talk to my Republican colleagues, I talked to uh, Representative Bud Holsey, who was the one who actually filed the expulsion papers against me. 
And this was the day I got reinstated. And I asked him, you know, we were on the elevator together. I said, Representative Holsey, have you learned anything from this experience? And and he just looked at me. He said, well, you know, Jones, I didn't want to bring it up in the first place. But, you know, the speaker, because I'm over criminal justice, told me I had to bring this resolution. But, you know, I didn't want to bring it. And so what it showed me was also a little revelatory, I think, for all of us, but but not so much so. But it shows us that my Republican colleagues are not even allowed to act according to their own conscience. They just have to follow what their leadership says. And it's so sad. I mean, it's so it's such a betrayal of the oath that we take as lawmakers to serve our districts, to serve the people who sent us there, to not vote on anything that is injurious to the people. And they chose to just fall in line because they're so fearful. And I don't think that we can operate in a politics of fear, but we have to embody this politics of hope, this politics rooted in, in love and, and justice. But they are so fearful of being primary. I mean, look at who's at the top of their ticket at the presidential level. I mean, people are fearful of challenging injustice and calling wrong wrong because they're so afraid that they'll be primary. I mean, it is it is very disappointing. And I hope that their own voters see that, that they, they're not even able to speak for the interests of their people because they're so there's just blind loyalty to a party that has went so rogue and so far from what our values are as a democracy um, that we should be very troubled by that. How long was the special session supposed to last? Because it seems to me it was pretty short. Yeah, I mean, under the proclamation, it had to be at least three days. Um, it should have lasted until we got common sense gun laws passed. You know, we were willing to stay as a party. The Democrats were willing to stay until we got work done. Um, it was the Republicans who um, got into infighting and then who abandoned their role, derelicted their duty, and and chose to go back to vacation um, because there's no reason why we should have left in the spring. Um, what we saw was they left in the spring because they felt too much pressure from the national media and they felt too much pressure from the eyes of the world watching them. So they said, we're gonna leave and then come back in August. And then we came back in August and they did nothing. They said, we're gonna come back in January. I mean, it was a waste of money. Every day that we were there for special session was $58,000, not including the extra cost for troopers and nothing got passed that was meaningful. I mean, the covenant mothers left crying um, and just left so frustrated because they had spent so all summer talking to my Republican colleagues, expecting just meaning, you know, some type of meaningful change, even meager change. And they left with nothing. And the speaker um, once again chose to um, go back to either his home in Nashville or his home in Crossville. I don't know where he went, but just left and, and left the people. And it's very sad. But I think that the people will remember come election time who stood with them and who ran away and, you know, who stood up and who chose to hide. You know, I think the people remember that. And I, I hope that they do. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, when you mentioned that this is what we're seeing from Republicans right now, it seems to be just they'll do anything um, for their party. Right before this podcast, actually, I was reading this great piece in Atlantic by David Graham, who talked about this sort of like ideological pur purity test that like every single Republican uh, kind of goes through and that, you know, no matter how much it hurts their community, no matter how much it hurts their state, they will do anything to um, show that they're a Republican, to show their support for Trump and this broader Republican party that's been created. But when you talk about the mothers who were there, who confronted Republicans, what did Republicans say to them? Did they even try to speak to them? Was there any interaction between Republican elected officials and these protesters and these mothers who went to the state Capitol? Yeah. Some tried to meet with them, but did not act, you know, did not put policy to their conversation. And then some um, were just completely insulting. Um, Representative Chris Todd from Madison County um, said, told the mothers in, in my committee, education committee that I that I serve on that, um, well, guns are just like rocks. Like if they didn't have guns, they would just use rocks against the children or hit them with a car. Like imagine a mother whose child was in a mass shooting and you're telling them a car. I mean, this is just so cruel callousness. Um, and then so many of them offer these solutions to armed teachers, to allow more guns in our schools, to let anyone carry a gun, um, to allow basically uh, vigilantes to uh, volunteer to protect the schools and just show up with guns outside. I mean, it was just such ridiculous, insulting policy proposals. Um, and, I, I, you know, I just I just my heart I'm thinking about the mother. I just remember them pouring their hearts out. I'm telling the story of a teacher whose hand was shaking as she was trying to lock her door, you know, 
to protect her students. And imagine if you say that teacher has to hold a gun, I mean, and, and have a gun like these are this and teachers didn't sign up. To, we don't pay them enough. Now we, we want them to be security guards. I mean, it is it is it is it is absurd. And this is what they offered. But more so, what was even more ridiculous was that the Speaker of the House, he put all his political capital in prioritizing um, trying juveniles as adults. And that was his solutions. Like we're going to we said protect kids. And he wanted to, you know, criminalize kids. And I think this this is not a real solution. Um, you know, we we have solutions that work, solutions that both Democrats and Republicans and independents support. The majority of Americans, 70 percent support red flag laws, universal background checks, a ban on high capacity magazines. You know, these are um, safe storage laws. These are common sense solutions that have worked. I mean, you know, to me, if we look at policy solutions, Tennessee and Massachusetts have the same population roughly the same population, but we have drastically more instances of gun violence because Massachusetts has, has enacted common sense gun laws, whereas Tennessee, we have permitless carry. We have, you know, you can basically you know, buy an AR-15 without a background check. We I saw it was on Facebook and um, they had a school doing a fundraiser raffling off an AR-15. You don't even have to have a background check. I mean, this is, this is what we're dealing with. And it's this very distorted view of what the Second Amendment is, because this is not what the Second Amendment is supposed to be about, but they've distorted it and manipulated it to be this unprecedented, unregulated, you know, gun proliferation that has no common sense safety measures. And that's not what it's about. Uh, they've ignored the words, a well-regulated militia. That just seems to have failed them completely. Let me just ask you two follow-up questions. One is, what is the uh, political makeup of the uh, legislature? How much, what percentage is Republican, what percentage Democrat? We are a super minority. And so there's 99 members in the House and there's 75 Republicans and 24 Democrats. Oh, wow. In the Senate, there's 33 members and five Democrats. So we are a super minority. But the only reason we are a super minority is because of these gerrymandered districts. Right. right. Um, I, you know, I lived on a street where half of my street was in my district and half of it was not. I mean, the maps here are so rigged and so, I mean, even our congressional map for the first time in Tennessee, um, Tennessee history since the Civil War, Nashville is represented by a Republican in Congress because they split our one county into three different congressional districts. So wow. Nashville. And then the legislature passed a law to cut our city council in half. And so at every level of government, our voices are being stifled and silenced. Do you have any optimism either about gun legislation, common sense gun legislation or on undoing the gerrymandered maps? I think so. I mean, there's been an awakening happening in Tennessee. And so last election, 70% oh, of the seats were unchallenged. Now, if you look at most of these districts, people are volunteering from all around the state to run against these Republicans. Um, and to challenge them. And they are not used to it. I mean, my Republican colleagues are terrified because they're so used to just winning by default that they don't even, they don't knock doors. They don't, you know, have town halls. They don't talk to their voters. And so you have mostly mothers saying, we're going to run, you know, we're going to run against extremists um, like the speaker and, and like Representative Gino Bolso, who represented Williamson County, it was so insulting to the mothers. And, you know, there's mothers there, some of them who are part of Covenant, who are thinking about running against them. You have people in these rural areas saying that, you know, we're not afraid to be Democrats anymore. We're not afraid to say the word Democrat. We're going to run and challenge you. And I think, you know, you cannot win unless you're on the field. And so what we're going to see is that people are putting their names out there. They're, they're stepping forward. And it's going to send ripples across our state, as well as the maps are being challenged in court. And we saw what happened in Alabama with their gerrymandered maps. I think just today in the news, you yes. saw that once again, the court has said these maps are unconstitutional because they, they, they dilute um, black voters power. And so I think the same thing can be said here in Nashville. Um, and it's been very intentional. It's been done with surgical precision to dilute the votes of communities of color, um, to, to suppress um, the votes of students. I mean, we have one of the most restrictive voter ID law where you can use a gun permit to vote, but you can't use a student ID card to vote. Wow. Um, you know, it's just it, we have all these laws in Tennessee. One in five black men cannot vote because of felony disenfranchisement. So after being released from jail, they still cannot vote. I mean, these are the tactics that they use. Um, you know, we you call it Jim Crow, but you know, here we what we're seeing is James Crow Esquire, a more sophisticated and subtle version of voter suppression that is rooted in the same tradition. I mean, it, it's it's comforting knowing what you said about the number of people who are challenging these Republicans in rural and um, urban areas. And we had on David Pepper, who used to lead the Ohio Democratic Party um, a few weeks ago, and one of the 
his suggestions is we need to get as many people challenging these people as possible because that's when they'll learn that maybe they aren't so invincible. And um, you know, that that's a very inspiring and hopeful thing. But I, I want to ask you about um the the current schedule of of um the session. So as we understand it, both the House and the Senate right now are off until January, correct? And is that the normal schedule? That is. So we're a part-time legislature, so we don't come back till January. Um, but we left early in the spring and then we came back for a special session and we had work to do and they chose to leave. And so um, their hope is that people will forget by January, the holidays will come, they'll have you know moved on. But but I don't think Tennesseans are going to fall for that trick anymore. And I think they're going to use this as time to organize, um, time to build infrastructure, time to recruit more candidates. And my, my, I'm excited and my hope is really in more young people running for office here in Tennessee. I think it's our time. Um, if you sit in these in these bodies, you see, that, you know, I ran when I was 26, um, youngest member there, yeah. and it should that should not be the case. You know, we should have more young people running, more women running. Um, there's only two um, Democratic women in the legislature. Um, there's only three. There's only two people under 30, and there are no. Um, I don't think there's anybody who's Latino. Um, we only have two members who are Asian. I mean, there's not, this is not what what our democracy should look like. We want it to reflect. You know, we want more than just old white men running our, you know, Tennessee government. And I think it's our time. Um, but also it is multiracial and multigenerational, because if you look at the Tennessee three, we are young. But Gloria, you know, is also standing with us. And she um, was has been courageous for a long time. And, and she's in her 60s and she's a white woman, but she's she stood with us in, in solidarity. And when we were expelled and she was not she did not hesitate to call it out for racism. So we also want to be multigenerational. Um and we want to, to also lift up the issues of, of inclusivity of around sexuality and around a religion. I mean, we had some very targeted laws against immigrants in our legislature, very targeted laws against the Muslim community. And so we, we want to really represent the diversity of what this nation is. Um, and that's what that's what the future of, of Tennessee is. Um, if, if they if they have their way, it won't be. But if we stand together, united um, in this hope, in this vision, we can really build a new South. And that's what our, our vision and hope is. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of guests um, come on who talk about the shift to fascism in the Republican Party. And I think that's a term that we've been hearing more of as we see instances like yours um, attempts. You mentioned um, firing DAs in Florida, um, the Wisconsin attempt to impeach newly elected and duly sworn in Supreme Court justices, North Carolina also doing that. Is fascism the word that you would kind of use to describe the moment that we're in and um kind of you mentioned some of the responses to that what do you think is the best thing that should be happening right now to respond to fascism i mean it definitely is fascism I, I've, I've called it authoritarianism um as i said it's something we've seen here in tennessee before um after reconstruction um you saw this backlash to to challenge multiracial democracy and so um our state's really interesting because I, I really, you know, we've seen these waves here. So you, you had, you know, this was a state that has always had this dissonance of, of democracy and those, you know, fighting um, really to silence voices. I mean, we are a state that um, during the Civil War, you know, joined the Confederacy, but then some counties in East Tennessee tried to secede to join the Union. And we're the state where the first abolitionist newspaper was written, we're the state of Highlander Folk School, where a lot of civil rights leaders trained during the civil rights movement. Um, but we're also the state where the KKK was founded, we're the state where Dr. King was assassinated, um, standing with sanitation workers. Um, and we're also the state where young people um, recommitted to the freedom rights and say that we're going to challenge Jim Crow after the bombing in Anderson and say we're going to continue the freedom rights. People like Diane Nash, a young woman here in Nashville, who said we're going to continue um, and, and not allow violence to overcome nonviolence. So we've always seen these fascists of, of fascism, of authoritarianism, of, of terrorism, I would call them. Um, but then you've also seen these movements to resist them. And I think that we have to continue that. Like here, it's going to take us standing together um, and they say that, you know, if you come from one of us, you come for all of us. And so um, that's whether they come after the media, if they come after, you know, our, our migrant brothers and sisters, if they come with this anti-Asian hate, if they come, you know, with this anti-Black hate, if they come um, challenge, uh, taking away women's reproductive justice, if they come attacking our LGBTQ plus community, like we have to stand united um, and not allow the politics of fear and division to have the final word. Um, and sometimes that takes getting in good trouble. You know, we went to the floor of the house 
um, not because we wanted to, but because we had to, if we were going to uphold our oath as lawmakers, um, to challenge any legislation or proposal that is injurious to the people. I've taken that oath three times now. Um, so, <laughs> you know, in less than a year. So I know, and I and I, and I take that seriously. Um, and our, in our constitution, it says that we as lawmakers have an obligation to dissent from and protest against any legislation that is injurious to the people. Protest against it. And so we have to be serious about that. Um, because what we're facing is a crisis and that if we um, do not speak up now, we, we, you know, we make it to a point where we cannot return. You know, what we're seeing here are groups like the Proud Boys, um, you know, really having an influence on our legislature, really trying to intimidate members. I mean, um, just during special session, they had a Proud Boy following glory around the legislature. And I had to have my assistant lock our doors because we did not know if we would be safe in that building. Wow. Um, but well, maybe it'll help that today. um the leader of the Proud Boys was sentenced to 22 years in jail. And maybe, maybe that will send as much of a message as you are sending with your leadership. You are an inspiration to me and I'm sure to Victor and to all people listening. Maybe we can end with your saying, if there's anything that you think our audience can do to be helpful. Definitely. Um, just continue to keep up what's happening in the South. Um, you can contact us. Um, my um, email is rep.justin.jones at capital.tn.gov um, or our campaign website, votejustinjones.com. Keep up with what's happening here because um, we're really trying to build a movement and really invest in these young people who are running in, in these places like the South um, because it really is a, a front line for democracy in our nation. And these state houses, a lot of people pay attention to what's happening in Washington at the national level, but the state house is really the laboratory where they experiment yes. with these harmful policies. Um, and, and they, you know, Republicans had a strategy called Red to the Roots, where they took over school boards, took over city councils and state legislatures. And so we have to get back to our roots and reclaim these as, as, as front lines of democracy. And so, and we have to stand together, no matter where you are, you know, in this nation, um, to fight for the future that we deserve. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to be with you, Victor and Jill. Um, thankful for, for all you all are doing to amplify the struggles happening and the hope that's happening in this nation. Um, and let's let's get ready for 2024, because it's going to be a ride. So <laughs> for sure. Well, I, I have one more thing that I, I don't want to end by without asking you this. You, before you hop, uh, hopped on this podcast, you also teach at Fisk University, which is your alma mater. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and what you teach um, during this time? Yeah, maybe this will be a point of hope, but these young people at Fisk, um, which is the school of John Lewis and Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette, um, I teach a course called Good Trouble in the political science department, and it's about social movements and social change theory. And so um, we're studying social movements, um, starting with the civil rights movement, but looking at global movements and looking at movements happening today for environmental justice and international global solidarity. And what are lessons we can learn from the past that can inform our movements today, but also how are things evolving? Um, and so um, just these young people give me so much hope. We had a very robust uh, conversation um, about John Lewis's book today, Across This Bridge. And um, just he is, he is such a, a great ancestor and inspiration and light um, in this work. And I just think about him a lot. I actually interned in Washington and will never forget um, the summer I spent there. I got to spend time in his office and he explained every single picture on the wall and just took so much time with young people. Um, and he said, you will appreciate this. And he went to his desk in, in Congress in his office and pulled out his arrest certificate from Nashville that he kept in his congressional desk. Wow. And those moments stick with me and remind me that we have to continue good trouble. And that as John Lewis says, that if you see something that is wrong, that is unjust, that is unfair, then you have an obligation to get in the way, to get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And that is our call um, in this day in 2023, just like it was their call in 1963. Uh, we must continue that legacy of liberation and get in good trouble. <laughs> I think we'll call this episode, Get in Good Trouble. Yes. It's a good <laughs> message. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Thank it's you. been a delight and an education. Thank, Thank you so much. And I apologize to your governor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Take care. Okay. 
Rachel, that was such a powerful episode. Um, uh, but for our chit chat, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did the first ever intergenerational um, dialogue between you and me. And we talked at the end of the episode uh, very briefly about some of the differences between um, your generation and my generation. And I was looking on Twitter yesterday, or I guess maybe X now you call it. Um, and I, I saw this tweet by one of your sisters-in-law and she said, I'm 22 except for MySpace account. And then I looked at the image and the image reads, you might be old if, um, and then and then it gives you a list of things and it says one point for everything you've done. Um, and I think both of us, we have the list uh, right now. And I'm curious what you've done and what you haven't done on this list. It's a pretty exhaustive list. Well, it, as it says, if you have done a lot of these things, you're old. I'm definitely <laughs> old. Um, I did almost all of these things. I don't have the list in front of me, but it's things like you've used dial-up to get the internet. Yes, I have. It talks about dialing a telephone, a rotary phone. Yes, I've dialed a rotary phone. It was the only thing that existed when I was growing up. I had a princess phone, by the way. I don't, oh. I'm sure you don't know what that is, but look it up. You'll know. Um, I didn't have a, an AOL MySpace account. I I probably was too late to the internet to have had one. Um, my email has always been Gmail. It's never been mm. anything else. Um, I think I had never played Atari, but that's because I've never played any games. It's not that it didn't exist during my lifetime. I just didn't play any computer games, mostly because they didn't exist when I was young enough to play them. Um, there were no computers. There were no smartphones. I used a typewriter. That was one of the things that gives you a point. Um, I took typing in high school and I was a very good typist. I could type very fast, but that's great for using a computer now. But yeah, and I'll bet that you probably only had maybe what, two things that you did on that list? There were, now that I'm looking at it, there were a few. So I have, I told you this before we went live, um, I have used a typewriter, but only at a museum where the I know. typewriter so, was. So like talk about making me relic. feel old, Victor. I used it at a museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've used that, but we'll, we'll, we'll scratch that because I haven't actually used a typewriter for any official yeah, purpose. Right. You never owned um, one. Never owned one, right. Never carried a portable typewriter. I remember <laughs> when electric typewriters came out. I mean, that was a big advance. You know, I, I went back when I used to figure skate, I actually, um, our rink was very old school. And it mentions that you listen to music on a boombox. I never listened to music on a boombox, but I did use a juke box, I think is what they call it. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And where you type in the number and then everyone. Yeah. Has you put in number. a coin. Right. And you select right. a song. Yes. Juke, J-U-K-E boxes J -U -K -E box. were, yes. were very big deal. Um <laughs> And in some restaurants, they had little teeny ones that were on the side of your booth, oh. as opposed to the big giant one. You probably had a big giant one. Yes, yes. Um, and you probably yeah. didn't have to put coins in because it was at an ice rink. Yes, so, yes. I, I have used a jukebox before. My third grade teacher forced all of us to learn cursive, which is actually a really oh. important skill. And there's actually a really good piece in The Atlantic um, about the death of cursive and what that means to our sort of lost ability to kind of recognize language. Um, I grew up where we actually sent letters to each other, snail mail. We yeah. hand wrote letters and we put them in an envelope with a stamp and put them in a mailbox. And that's how we communicated. It was none of this instant communication. My mother had the most beautiful cursive handwriting oh. and her sister, my aunt Ethel had a beautiful handwriting too. My handwriting, I look like I'm a lefty in, in I sort of write backhand. But I'm I'm not. I write with my right hand. I I have a very goofy handwriting, um, but I did learn cursive and I can use it. Um, I also not. learned shorthand. I bet you don't even oh. know what that is. You know what no. shorthand is? No. So in in the old days, when I first started practicing law, I had a secretary who took dictation. I would speak to her, and she oh. would write down. She wrote on a little pad of paper, sort of you know like this kind of thing. She would write down every word I said, and then she would type it up and bring it back. I would correct it. And in those days, correcting it meant starting from scratch because there was no computer where it was there and you could just change words on the computer one word at a time. You had to type the whole thing over. 
So you didn't go through as many drafts as I go through now. I mean, now it's very easy. I make some changes and go, oh, that doesn't sound so good. I can change it again. In the old days, no, you couldn't do that. Oh, so interesting. You know, when you mentioned all um, you know, the snail mail, <laughs> not not to make you feel even older, but like when I when I was at college, my first quarter, I was talking to some people about, you know, mailing an address. And one of them asked me, how do you, you know, format something on an envelope? And like, and they didn't believe me when I was like, you need a stamp. And they're like, for what? And I was like, to send mail. Yes. Oh my God. Um, but it's one of those things where, I mean, I, I knew that, but I was shocked when <laughs> the people around me didn't know that. But um, uh, some of the other things, yeah, I, I really, I mean, I've used a paper map before. Um, oh, have you? Okay. I've used a paper map. As opposed before. to on As your phone. On my phone, right. Oh, um, and the okay. only other thing that, I, that I've that i done here is, well, I've used, I've uncurled a telephone cord. Where did you do that? Um, home, actually. We have- Oh, is that, uh, oh, is that right? Curly, yeah. And so oh, I so I, I, we used to have, like in the kitchen, would have oh. like a 20 foot phone cord so you could walk yeah. around with it and it would get tangled all the time. And I mean, it was a big deal when phones that you could actually walk around wirelessly with, that was a big deal. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I worked at Motorola in the early days of cell phones, they came up with an idea called WILL, Wireless Local Loop. And the idea was that instead of a payphone that you had to put a quarter into, there would be cell sites like your home phone that's wireless, but you would just carry a phone that you could stand there and you could use that cell site. Hmm. And I said to them, why would anyone in the days of well, cell phone that you can walk with stand at the equivalent phone to do that? And of course it never succeeded because no one wanted to use that. It was silly to think about. So anyway. So interesting. Well, look how far we've come. And um, I'm curious to see, in, in, you know, when I, when I reach your age and when I talk to a 20 year old, what the things <laughs> I've done that they haven't done. Will right. be. I mean, that's terrifying. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think we should post on, in our show notes, uh, the information that Justin gave us, because yes. I want to return to how serious yes. the problems in his state are and how much I fear the loss of democracy. So we should post that, but we should also post this questionnaire of things that have you done or not done. And I think that would be fun to have people tell us what their scores are. So I'd like to hear from all of you. Um, You can get us on X or on threads. Um, So send us that way. I also have a website. You can reach me there. Let me know what you think. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of iGen Politics or listening to it. Uh, Jill and I both appreciate it so much, and we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did and found it as alarming as we did. And we'll take action, just like Justin said, get in good and necessary trouble. Um, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of iGen Politics. Uh, but in the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcasts uh, or right here on youtube.com slash Politicon uh, so you don't miss an episode. Uh, we will see you next week. And thanks again for tuning in.